<laughs> so we'll be in Isaiah 47 today. You're welcome to turn there. You don't have to live in Australia long to realize that ego and boasting and self-importance are really not looked well upon culturally. I think it's true in the States as well. Um, not only is it distasteful, but apparently it's bad for business as well. I was reading, uh, it was a CEO of an Australian fund management company. He said, ego and self-importance are the enemies of great corporate culture. It's like, hmm, okay. And, and that is shared across the world. I remember many times when a celebrity would have been pulled over in the States and was getting breath tested or denied access to a club or something or, or being talked to by a police officer and they say, don't you know who I am? And they, they love to report that, that the person actually said that when they were being pulled over. And if you, if you were to look it up, you could find many instances where you know, celebrities, 15 celebrities who said, don't you know who I am? And you can uh, find who, who thinks that they're really hot stuff, kind of a big deal uh, in the world. But it really lessens people's credibility and, and people, I think, remember that. Like, oh, that's the guy who thinks he's really something. And then you think a little less of that person, perhaps. But if anyone has the legitimate cause to say, don't you know who I am? It would have been Jesus. He never said that, but he's the son of God. He created everything. He's the one that everyone should have recognized and known that, wow, because of the things he's teaching, the things he's doing, the miracles, raising people from the dead, uh, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He, he should have had some recognition for who he is. And, but when he's getting arrested, wrongfully arrested, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't say, don't you know who I am? He wasn't looking to get fanfare for himself. When he was questioned by Caiaphas in John 18, he asked him some questions and Jesus answered them and someone smacked him on the mouth and says, is that how you answer the high priest? As if Jesus didn't know that was the high priest. Jesus knew who he was talking to. And then later when he's brought before Pilate, Pilate pulled a don't you know who I am on him when he said in John 19, 10 and 11, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus, when he's arrested, when he's being questioned, when he's being condemned to die, he doesn't pull rank. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He provides this pattern of humility and strength that we do well to follow. And to do this, we need to be filled with the Spirit because our flesh is always wanting to seek recognition for itself. Like, Don't you know that I'm the boss? You can't talk to me that way. You can't do this to me. I have authority, right? But that's not how Jesus acted. That's not how he is. And so when we get to our text, a little bit of background, God chose Babylon to be his instrument to discipline his people. They had fallen into idolatry. They had sought other gods. And he said, okay, the Babylonians will come. They will destroy Jerusalem, take captive many people. And 
Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians being used by God as his tool, instead of being humbled before God, they were actually proud about it. They thought it was because of their divination and their skill in warfare. And God would, as the king went, so went the people, really. And we see that Babylon, they were a mighty city, a powerful nation. They were proud. God would humble Nebuchadnezzar, but the people, they wouldn't be humbled. And so God spoke of the Jews and their deliverance even before they were taken captive. And he spoke of the Babylonians' demise even before they established their empire. So God saw it all unfolding. He knew what was going to happen. And he gave opportunities for people to repent, as we'll see today. So really, it's a reminder that all who walk in pride, God is able to abase, and he gives grace to the humble. Jesus was humble. He was truly the humble king that we love. Let's just thank him again as we open his word. Father, thank you for your word. How precious it is. How sweet it is to our taste. How strong it is. How powerful to pierce our hearts and to expose our motives. And we pray, Lord, that you would do your work through your word in our hearts today, both with the children and with us. May we be your children having faith as a child to humbly come before you, to examine ourselves according to your word, and to walk in obedience to you. Thank you again for our family here and for your grace toward us in Jesus' name. Amen. So God takes Babylon to task, but in doing so, he can also take us to task. Isaiah 47, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. God compares Babylon to a proud princess who had many servants, very wealthy, the kind of girl that she, she disdained to even set her foot upon the ground. It would be carried on a litter wherever she went. Very privileged, affluent, had great wealth and beauty. But the day was coming when she would be stripped of her fine clothes, her ornaments, and she would sit in the dust without a throne and doing the work really of a beast of burden or a slave. It's like, sit on the dust without a throne, without your fine clothes. You're going to be brought low. In the ancient world, even to modern times, many shameful acts have been done during warfare. Um, rape is a terrible, it's a wicked weapon of war that we have seen, an atrocity done by the Babylonians upon the Jews, and it would also come upon the Babylonians. And God warned Israel of this uh, result of their sin, that they would be humiliated in that way. Isaiah 13, 16, it says, Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. So they would experience great shame as a nation. That's what That's the picture of what would happen to Babylon. They would be taken advantage of, they would be destroyed, they would be helpless, they would be absolutely unable to help themselves. God said that I will take vengeance. I will not arbitrate with a man. Now, in a court of law, you have the opportunity to have a plea bargain. 
you can, as a guilty party, plead guilty and thus reduce your sentence or the severity of the punishment, right? So it's in your favor if you know, hey, you got me. There's, there's, I can't, I can't get out of this one. I know you have the evidence and, and I'll just plead guilty to avoid if, if the capital punishment is still in place, well, to avoid that or to perhaps reduce my sentence. But instead of admitting guilt, when God had all the details on them, he had all the dirt, and he says, well, how do you plead? And they said, not guilty. They were arrogant. And they could expect, therefore, the judge to throw the book at them. And that's what he would do. And that is a book that when it falls on you, it will grind you to powder. (laughs) You cannot withstand God's laws, his judgments. They are, we cannot... uh, There's nothing that we can do to help ourselves when we're condemned by them, right? That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to be born again and be purchased with the blood of Christ. So verse 4, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. The Babylonians imagined that they had defeated the Israelites and taken Jerusalem by their great might and power. But it was God who delivered Israel into their hand. God did it. He used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, but it was God who was responsible. God commissioned them to destroy Jerusalem and take captives, but they went way beyond what he had told them to do. They were cruel. They were brutal to his people. If you want to read more about it, you could read it in Lamentations of Jeremiah. We've been reading through that as a family after dinner, and you get into those chapters and you see just the kind of things that the people had to endure, and it was terrible. It was brutal. They slaughtered children, they ravished women, they laid a heavy yoke on the elderly, they refused to show mercy to the weak, they boasted and gloated after winning the battles, and they said, "Um, I'll be a lady forever. No one can touch us. We have great power. Who's going to knock us over? You know, we're the head of gold kind of idea. And for this, God would bring Babylon down. Pride comes before a fall. They were lifted up. They refused to humble themselves, and so God would take them down in his time. The day would come when they wouldn't be recognized as the lady of all kingdoms. They were a glorious kingdom. They were powerful, strong. And Babylon was an amazing sight. If you look up, it was one of the wonders of the world with the hanging gardens and the, the rivers flowing through, and it was a beautiful land. But they did not think about the end result. They didn't think about the trajectory of where they're going. They're going up, up, up. Pride is being, it's growing exponentially, but not thinking about that there is a God, one true God, who has power over all nations, who pulls them down as he wills. They didn't think about, well, what about Egypt? They were strong. They were untouchable. How about Assyria? How about Jericho, the impregnable fortress that fell down before God, or or even Jerusalem, which the Jebusites said, hey, the blind and the lame can protect you from taking this city. These, These strongholds that 
people were proud of, God saw every one of them brought down. And the nations today are no different. If we vaunt ourselves against the Most High, He can and ultimately will bring down the proud. Should Babylon have been any different? I mean, it only took 70 years or so, and they were brought down. And it looked impossible from their view. Verse 4, it says of God, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Now, this word Redeemer, it's not just to buy something back. It has a great depth of meaning to the Jews. Because this word Gaal, it means to redeem. A Goel is someone who redeems. And the biblical picture of of redeem, a redeemer or some a kinsman redeemer we see in Boaz, where um, he was pleased to marry Ruth, though she was a foreigner, to raise up godly seed for her deceased husband. He decided to marry her, to redeem her. And the, the role of a redeemer, it was to buy relatives back from slavery. Or if they were in, in debt, if they had gone into debt, this redeemer had the, the duty and responsibility and the power legally to buy them out of slavery and to purchase their land that was their inheritance that had fallen into other hands. They were to protect the weak. They were to be looking out for others. And also the Goel had the responsibility as the avenger of blood. If there was a family member who had been killed, and the perpetrators had escaped the hand of justice, the law had not touched them, then they had the right and responsibility to pursue and avenge that death. That was part of it. And that's exactly what God would be for his people as their Gaal, their Goel. He paid for their release from slavery. Right? He brought them out with a mighty hand out of Egypt. He would bring them out uh, using the Persians. Later, after their captivity, he would restore them to their land. He would preserve and provide for their nation. He would also avenge them for the evil that had been done to them because great evil had been done. He would avenge them. And if you're a poor, helpless slave, you could only dream of having an avenger like this, like our God, a redeemer who can provide for you, who will support you, not just in this life, but we're talking eternity who will avenge you, who knows when you've been wronged. He knows it more than you. Have you ever had someone who came up and apologized for something and you had no idea that they had even done anything? Well, God knows about those things. He's not forgetful. Nothing escapes him. And you remember when Boaz, he was a, he was a wealthy landowner. And when Ruth came, he said, leave some extra food behind for her. And then when she came to him and, and made that offer or, or in, a, in a very gentle way said, you know, will you marry me? What did he do? He loaded her down with all sorts of food. He's like, hey, go home. I'll take care of this. And that day he saw it done. So our God, he is like that. He is a rich God. He is a powerful God. He is an avenger, a provider, a protector, not just in this life, for eternity one who will take vengeance on his enemies. So the Babylonians, they gloated in their victory. They oppressed their enemies. You know, they were the victors, the Babylonians. 
And Christ has made us victors through his blood. And it is possible that as believers, we can be a bit arrogant or even self-righteous that we have the truth and that we have a future. And it's an unshakable hope that we have in Christ. And we can have that same pride that we find there. If Satan, in whom was created without sin, pride and sin would be found, it's very possible that we too could be lifted up with pride. I was intrigued when I was reading a quote by Bultima in the Enduring Word Commentary. He connected the passage in Isaiah that we're reading uh, with a corrupted church, a a church that has become arrogant or proud. He says, In her self-satisfaction and frivolous self-deception, she says, I shall be a lady. She claims royal riches, power and honor for herself forever. A queen feels she must reign. And that was also the church's goal quite early. Soon it placed a cross on its steeple instead of its shoulders. With all its veneration of the cross, it hated the cross in a spiritual sense and reached for the crown of the world. Think about that. Putting the cross for all to see, but not putting it upon your own shoulder. When Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's not seeking after the riches or the glory or the, the veneration, the worship of the world. Everyone say, oh yeah, you guys were right all along and you want some credit, but really it's God's glory. It's not for us, it's for him. We should be humbled that our God reigns. Never try to seek an earthly crown or earthly recognition instead of the cross that he's told us to carry. We're to follow that pattern of humility. So we have Jesus as a redeemer, and God wants to use you to see that others are redeemed, brought into the kingdom by your testimony, by a life that is faithful to God even in hardship and trials, and that he would receive the praise from your life. It was the deliverance of the Jews from Egypt with a mighty hand that caused Rahab and others to tremble at the name of God, where their hearts melted because they heard about what God did. And when he brings you through some tough stuff and he brings you through as gold, the world will see and they will realize that there is a reality in God that they do not possess. There is a power to save that is very real. Isaiah 47, verse 8, Therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. God spoke to people in Babylon who were secure. They were very uh, content behind their strong walls, their great wealth, world domination. It felt pretty good. No one was really threatening them. And they were given over to pleasing their flesh with, with drink, food, sex, the luxuries of wealth. And God knew their hearts. And consider what their hearts said. I am. There is no one else besides me. Now, does that strike you? that they would use that term, I am, when that is a term that God used to describe himself. When Moses said, who should I say sent me? 
I am. I am that I am. Because God's eternal. He's without beginning, without ending. He always is. So I am is a fitting title. And in the past couple weeks, we've been hearing that God has said, let's say in Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God besides me. Isaiah 45.18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord, there is no other. And last week, Isaiah 46.9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. So it's very clear that there is God and then there is other. Everything else stands in opposition to God. That's not God. But God's like, I am. But what was Babylon saying? I am, there is no one else beside me. That was what their heart was saying. They had raised themselves up into God's place. Instead of looking to God, they looked to themselves. And they didn't think anyone could touch them. God will do this to all nations who think that their national sovereignty trumps God's sovereignty. My dad told me about a game he used to play during recess called King of the Hill. It has nothing to do with the, the cartoon. Just want to make that clear. Uh, but anyway, so King of the Hill, and they'd play it in the snow. They'd heap up the snow and, and make a, a pretty steep mound. And the, so the object of the game was to be at the top when the bell rang. At the end of recess, whoever's at the top, they win. Everyone else, all the other kids, are trying to get to the top. So they're all teaming up to throw you down or to knock you over or just to grab you and pull you off. And then you're up at the top. Yes, and oh, oh, and there's more people trying to grab you. And it's like a big wrestling match. And it cost my dad a femur. I mean, he broke a leg playing this game. Um, I never asked him if he kept playing the game after. But anyway, it sounded like good fun um, until someone breaks a leg or loses an eye. But it's like, you can be king of the hill for a day. You can be an empire for years. But in the end, God is the king, not just of a hill. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the eternal I am that no one can stand against. If you go toe-to-toe with him, if you want to wrestle with him a bit, you're going to go down. That's just how it's going to go because he is a great God. He is gracious too, isn't he? I mean, I'm thinking when Jacob wrestled with that angel slash God, that he could have overcome him. But all he did was he, he says, you've wrestled with God and prevailed. He touched him and, and his hip shrunk and he, he limped from that day forward. God could have done a lot more to him. But he gave them this reminder, like, remember who you are. And so it's good for us to remember. So things went well for decades for the Babylonians. They congratulated themselves with their might and their power, and they said, these good times, they're going to last forever. They were like a, a proud wife with a, a, a king for a husband, with children, and they're like, wow, good times. They're just going to keep coming. But in a moment, they were going to lose their children. They were going to be widowed in a day. It was just going to happen suddenly when they weren't expecting it. And you can read about that in Daniel if you'd like. But God says why he did it. Not just their pride, 
But it says in verse 9, because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments. God allowed Israel to fall because of their idolatry, and he brought down Babylon because of the witchcraft and sorcery that were so prevalent there. Matthew Henry wrote, Witchcraft is a sin in giving that honor to the devil, which is due to God only, making God's enemy our guide. That is a bad thing to do, to make God's enemy your guide. Instead of seeking God or following the truth of God's word, the Babylonians, they sought input from their learned men, their soothsayers, their magicians, their astrologers. Ezekiel 21, 21, it gives us some insight into how even the king would use divination to make decisions. It says, For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the images. He looks at the liver. I've gone into this in more detail at another time, but basically, he's like, should I go right? Should I go left? You throw the arrows in the air, and the way they fall, you go, oh, well, there's more pointing this way, so I'm going to go that way. Or you make a sacrifice, and you look at the entrails, and, oh, this is a good omen. This is a good sign. We should continue. Or, nope, it's time to go home. So they would be consulting the images and the soothsayers and these wise men and their enchantments and seeking their counsel rather than God's. Now, it's interesting because though Nebuchadnezzar had these wise men and soothsayers, there were at least three times that's written in Daniel when they didn't have the answer, and it was Daniel, through the spirit of the living God, who gave them the answer they were looking for. They were going around killing the wise men, and Daniel's like, oh, time out, give us time. We'll pray to God, he will give us the answer. And he did. And they were promoted. The Babylonians mistakenly, they credited divination for their success rather than God. And God graciously brought devout Jews, like Daniel, right into the court of the king so that they could see firsthand the power and the wisdom of the living God, time after time after time. Nebuchadnezzar did have a heart change, but the nation didn't. They had gone astray, going after witchcraft and divination. So for 70 years around, they had an opportunity with all the evidence laid before them to repent and to turn to the living God. And because they would not humble themselves before God, he would bring them down. Verse 10, For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. You have said in your heart, I am and there is none else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. And trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. The Babylonians had trusted in wickedness to preserve them, to protect them, so God would send evil upon them. They kind of had made their bed, and God would let them lie in it if they wanted. They were experts in spells and enchantments, fortune-telling. They sought the aid of demons. Their knowledge of witchcraft had warped them. It had distorted their thinking, and it gave them this inflated sense of control and power they're like, oh, we, we've got these secrets. This secret knowledge is what's going to help us. They felt untouchable. They felt like God. 
really, in a sense. That they could do something here. We can do a ritual here and affect people over there. And there's, there is this thirst for power in man. People today, they employ occultic practices to harness metaphysical power to their own end. This idea of secret supernatural power that's available to the initiated, it's a deadly lure. It appeals to some people. It doesn't really appeal to others. Um, I'd say that witchcraft doesn't appeal to anyone. But I remember as a kid, the idea of being able to move something that's I'm not touching with my mind was a pretty cool idea. It's like, whoa, if you could do that, that would be awesome. You know, I would like lift that chair or make that door open and shut just so people would freak out. And like, like, yeah, that would be pretty neat. Right? There's some people are like, oh, I would never want that. But I did. I thought it'd be cool to use the force or, you know, to be able to do something like that. But the problem is witchcraft is first rebellion against God and it's a thirst for power. Power and control over others. Fear, so people will fear you and they'll respect you because of your power that they realize you have. That is the lure. That is pride, right? Curiosity leads to dabbling. Dabbling leads to bondage. And it's always the way with sin. Now, in the book of Acts chapter 8, we speak, there, it speaks of Simon the sorcerer. Now, here's a man in the city of Samaria who had often wowed people with his uh, enchantments, his ability to, to use demonic power to do miracles. And people go, oh, this is a man of God. This is the power of God. And so he had a lot of fame. He was probably wealthy. And he liked having control. He liked having power. He liked being the one that everyone's like, don't mess with that guy. Oh, we better pay him off. He, we don't want him to put a curse on us because remember what, when he did that? Oh, yeah. And so he, he had people just really in the palm of his hand. But when Philip came, he's preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. Demons are being cast out of people. And so it's like all the power that, that Simon had, he realized that this is legitimate power. It's power that I don't have. Even Simon starts following. He's baptized. We don't know that he's following Jesus, but he starts following Philip around. It says that he astonished people and they heeded him because of his sorceries. So he had an audience. Now his audience is gone. And it says that after the disciples in Jerusalem heard the word of God had been received in Samaria, Christians went and laid hands on those people to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 18, verse 18, this is what it says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Simon had been warped with this desire for power, 
much as the Babylonians had. He attempted to buy the gift of God with money, just like a magician offering a wad of cash to learn a new trick. Hey, show me that secret. I can make some money off that. Like, hey, this would be a great gig. I, I, obviously, my previous gig is over, but I can get into this new area, laying my hands on people so they receive the Holy Spirit. Man, think of the, the tourist trade or whatever he was thinking. But people want power at their disposal, even the power of God. That's what this shows us. So it's a good thing to consider, is my heart right before God? Or do I just want power from God? Because whether we're like Simon or not, whether we practice witchcraft or not, there is in our hearts a desire for control and power that is common to men. Thank God that he purifies us, that he can change us, that we realize power God gives isn't for me to have control or authority. It's so that God can be glorified, so that people can come to him and be born again and be filled with the Spirit. And without money, if you have the Holy Spirit, hey, you can lay your hands on people, you can pray for people, and they can be delivered, they can be saved. So, good thing to consider. Um that we haven't been warped by a sense of power. So back to Isaiah 47, 12. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble, The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each to his own quarter. No one shall save you. Babylon had, as they say, a snowball's chance in hell to profit or prevail through their enchantments against God. No chance. And I get a little flavor of the tone that Elijah used with the prophets of Baal. Do you hear it there? Oh, keep working, keep searching the stars. Keep laying down curses and hexes. Um, See, maybe it'll help. It's kind of like Elijah where he says, hey, yell a little louder. Maybe Baal is on holiday. Maybe he's sleepy. You know, keep keep it up, guys. You've been you've been at it all day, but but a little louder, please. Come on, help yourself out. So he's like, stand now with your enchantments. You trust in them. Go ahead, give yourself wholly to them. But it's not going to help you. It's not going to save you. There's no salvation there. From their youth, he says, you've labored in sorcery. You have worked at it to learn this stuff. From a biblical perspective, there's no good wizards or sorcerers. So-called white or black magic, they're equally evil in the sight of God because they defy him. They don't seek him. They're not, it's not power from God for God. It is power from another source. And the Babylonians, they were entrenched. They were reliant upon their witchcraft and they would become weary in it. They were going to wear themselves out trying as anything they could to save themselves, to help themselves, and consulting the astrologers and the the stars and the prognostications of their monthly horoscopes. 
and they weren't going to find anything out. They were just going to get conflicting messages. Nothing's going to make sense. There was, And even knowledge in itself, it has no power to save you. I can know that I have cancer, but it doesn't mean I can be cured of cancer. I can know that I'm going to die. I have two months to live, but it doesn't mean I can prolong my life. What power does knowledge give me then? He says concerning their astrologers, Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar heated up the the fiery furnace seven times hotter than typical, and he was going to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego alive into it? It said that the mighty men that bound them, they died just throwing them in. They didn't go in themselves, but just getting that close killed them. That was not a coal to warm your hands by, right? That was like instant death. So God's like, it's not going to be a little fire. It's not just going to be something to warm you. Like, ooh, that's a little warm. No, it's going to consume you like chaff, like very dry fibers. It's just foop. It's gone. Now today... Many people are of the mind that fortune-telling or prognostications, horoscopes, tarot cards, and it's just a bit of fun, right? It's just something to have a bit of a laugh and curiosity. Oh, there's no big deal. It's actually quite a big thing um, across the world. The Bible makes it clear that seeking any guidance apart from God, especially from demonic forces, is sinful. It's an abomination before him. To seek advice from a fortune teller instead of going to God, it denies God, it sets up a false sense of security, and it puts self at the center. No, there's no good future apart from God. There's no fortune apart from God. Fortune was actually a God that was worshipped. That word, you say, oh, good fortune. Well, that's a good That is the good fortune. There's also bad fortune, right? You have the yin and the yang. You have the good fortune and the bad fortune. You're trying to appease one of them. And so dabbling with fortune tellers, it leads to dependence. And many people have been anxious and worried about bad readings they have had. And they have really been torn up about it. Because as much as they don't want to believe it, it just eats away at them. Because like you went, you paid 300 bucks to be, to get your reading. And now it was a bad one. What are you going to do now? You have to go back to know, well, what do I do? Right? You become reliant upon them. Blind guides. A false sense of security. They're lost deceivers who wander without salvation, without the power to save. Deceivers who are deceived. Trust in self, trust in others, it leads to despair, whether it involves witchcraft or not, right? If I'm looking to another person, despair, that person can't save me. They can't help me in the end. Self-important people say, don't you know who I am? To those who look through divination for insights, I ask, don't you know who God is? Don't you know him? Don't you realize the God that has created all things, he has all power. And it is, it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. 
He seeks good for us. He gives us a hope and a future. People just, they're happy with information, right? Should I do this? Should I do that? You say right, I'll go right. You say left, I'll go left. But God wants us to know more than just information. He wants us to know him. He says, blessed is the man who knows me. And as Christians, we have a new identity in Christ. We could ask, don't you know who you are? As a Christian, don't you know who you are? You are a child of God. You have God as a father who's given you richly all things to enjoy, who will supply your needs. He is your redeemer. He's the one who has brought you out of slavery, out of sin, out of the pit. He's the one who has established your feet on solid ground, on that foundation of Jesus. And he's the one who's brought you to this point, and he will see you through for eternity, the rest of this life, and for all time. And we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be enslaved to worry. We don't need to wonder what the future holds. We can look to God who holds the future and recognize he is king. There is no other. He is God. There's no one else but him. And so if we're Christians who are looking to other things rather than God for guidance or security or salvation, it's a fair question. Do you know who you are if you're a born-again Christian? The Babylonians made their mistake in finding their identity in what could not save them. They labored in, in seeking after what was a lie. We need to know more than just who Jesus is. Because doesn't it say that the demons know God and tremble? They were the ones who, who agreed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and they begged him not to torture them before the time. Don't torment us before the time, Jesus. They knew, but they were not saved. We had a good question uh, in the youth uh, this last Friday night. And the reason why Satan nor any demon can be saved is because Jesus didn't die for demons. Jesus came as a man to die for people. He shed his blood so we could be born again. They have already made their decision. They're in a different, uh, they're under a different set of, I guess, laws being in the supernatural realm. But God is the same, and he's given us a way of salvation through Christ. We have to believe that Jesus is the great I am, the crucified Lamb of God, risen from the dead. Repent of our sins and believing we can have life in his name. He will redeem us. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, and we'll finish here. Talking about identity and who we are, we can know that through who Jesus is and how he lived. We see in Christ a pattern of life that we are to follow. And as we read this passage, consider how far a cry it is from the self-centered advice that's prevalent in the world today. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. This is the wisdom of God. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. 
If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The world, a lot of the new age thinking, it's stand up for yourself. You're the master of your own destiny. You're in control. Follow your heart. You can make your dreams come true and let no one stand in your way. That is completely opposite to what God is saying that we are called to as the servants of the Most High. Jesus knew his future. He knew to what he had been called, and it was to suffer patiently. And we can't do that. If we had the power to end our suffering in a moment, we would. But this is good in the sight of God, commendable. When we do the right thing and we suffer for it and we keep doing the right thing because we trust God. Jesus was unjustly reviled and slandered. He did not return in kind and he would have been just to. He could have. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He had a redeemer. He knew that God would avenge. He didn't have to threaten because he has a father in heaven. And because Jesus died for our sins, verse 24 says that we ought to live for righteousness. We were once like lost sheep, but now we've returned in faith to the shepherd and overseers of our soul, overseer of our soul. Babylon was king of the hill before a fall. And God would have you take a, a look at your life. Consider the trajectory of your life. I've heard a great quote of an elderly Christian who said, The older I get, I sin less and repent more. And may that be true of us as well, that we do sin less because we are intentional to do what pleases God, but we actually repent more than we ever did because in light of His grace and goodness, we see ourselves in truth that he is God. And that picture of humility, it's beautiful in God's sight. It's not the hair, it's not the makeup or the clothing, it's not the finery, it's not the great feats that you can do for him. Humility is beautiful in God's sight. That you would actually suffer and receive it patiently, looking to him. I want to leave you with a final thought. In 2 Timothy 2 through 9. In the early church, there were heresies. There was darkness coming in like a flood, like in the song we sang. There were people who were shipwrecked concerning the true faith. 
But the existence of false teaching, idolatry, or witchcraft did not negate the truth. All those clamoring voices did not silence the one truth in Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, the life. It says in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That is a solid foundation for you to live your life upon. In Jesus, knowing God knows who are his. He knows that I am his. I can know that I am his, and I don't have to worry about those others, I know that I'm the Lord's. And God knows those people too. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We never need to ask God, don't you know who I am? Because God knows who are his. He knows it very well because he's purchased you with the blood of Christ. He never forgets. By his grace, he'll fill us with his spirit. He'll enable us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our heavenly father, our great redeemer, the one who has provided for us, the one who has purchased us, the one who will protect us, that you will avenge us in due time when we are suffering for doing what is right. Lord, strengthen us to take it patiently with our eyes looking to you, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, lest we be wearied and discouraged in our souls. Thank you, Father, that we have such an example laid before us of Jesus and Paul and Peter and many others who faced persecutions and difficulties, yet endured to the end, running their race with joy. Lord, may the joy of the Lord be our strength today as we look to you and rely upon you. If we've been dabbling, Lord, if we've been seeking to find direction and guidance and security in anything other than you, Lord, please reveal it to us so we might repent and come back to you, back into your fold, back under your oversight. And thank you that you will shepherd us and you'll take us to those green pastures, those still waters. You will restore our souls. So, Lord, I pray that you would restore our souls today and that we'd abide and rest in your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.